You're listening to Sportsnet Today with Logan Gordon on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Let's kick things off on a Friday. Welcome into the Doug Lacey's Basement Systems downtown studios here in Calgary, Alberta. It's Logan Gordon along with you for another edition of Sportsnet Today. Busy program coming your way over the next two hours. We'll dive into the latest news around the Calgary Flames of the practice day for Ryan Huska's group as they get set to take on the Seattle Kraken. Quick one-game road trip. For the Calgary Flames. And if you've missed it by now, plenty of roster movement for the Calgary Flames over the last 48 hours, including sending Matt Coronado to the Calgary Wranglers. We'll dive into that in just a few moments. We'll also hear from Adnan Verka, our MLB insider from MLB Network and the Cinephile podcast. He was covering the World Series, which saw the Texas Rangers bring home their first World Series title. Matt Marchese joins us on a Friday to get set for another week of NFL football and look back at Thursday night football and Everett Fitzhugh, our pal Seattle Kraken play-by-play voice going to join us to get a look at tomorrow's opposition for the Calgary Flames, the Seattle Kraken. Quick reminder, if you're listening live, feel free to shoot us a text. The fan feedback line always open to you here on Sportsnet today, 960-960. Feel free to chime in on any of the topics we hit on the program today. Alongside my outstanding producers, Azam and Taylor, on this Friday. And yes, we do start with the Calgary Flames. Matt Coronado, the big news on this Friday, sent down to the Calgary Wranglers, the 2021 first round pick of the Calgary Flames, 13th overall in 10 games this season. One goal, one assist, and a minus nine on the plus minus side for Matt Coronado. Nick Simone has been recalled. Martin Pospisil as well from the Calgary Wranglers. And a uh, quick turnaround for Matt Coronado after practicing with the Flames yesterday. He is in the lineup for an afternoon matchup at the Scotiabank Saddle Dome, the San Jose Barracuda in town. And per our uh, friend Sandra Persino, the play-by-play voice of the Wranglers, Matt Coronado taking line rushes with Cole Schwint and Rory Karen. So he'll make his AHL debut today. And as always, when... A high-profile prospect gets sent down to the American Hockey League. There is discourse from some frustrated with the move, some wondering if it's the right move for the Calgary Flames. And look, uh, the fact of the matter is, is Matt Coronado, I think, had a very strong start to the season. I think going back to Penticton for this Flames group, he had a, a bit of a slow start, turned it on during training camp, was easily... One of the, the top performers for this group throughout the preseason and definitely earned a spot to start the season. And we've talked about this before. Matt Coronado's skill set is one that the Calgary Flames severely lack at the NHL level. A right shot scoring threat that can play in the top six is just something that this Calgary Flames team lacks. And when you look at Matt Coronado and what he's able to do, you sit there and go, well, that's a that's a perfect fit. He's got to be in there night in, night out. It's going to be a, 
a, a seamless transition for him. And for a little while, it was. But this is a young man still finding his way at the pro level. You got to understand the jump from NCAA hockey straight to the NHL is a massive one. Not just in, in skill and competition, uh, but as much hockey as Matt Coronado's played, that's a new thing for him. And I think over the last six, seven games for the Calgary Flames, we saw Matt Coronado slide a bit and his place in the lineup changed. Going back to the last game for the Calgary Flames, he played just over 12 minutes on a fourth line where he was centering the fourth line. And that's just not where Matt Coronado is going to succeed. And it was something that Ryan Huska pointed out post game following the loss to Dallas that didn't look like it was a strong fit for Coronado at center on the fourth line for the Flames. What were your impressions of uh, Coronado at center? Um, it was a, it was a bit of a struggle for him in that line tonight. And then Thursday practice, we see Coronado again rotating on the fourth line. Dylan Dubé looks like he's going to be back from injury. A guy that's played more center at the NHL level, obviously, than Matt Coronado has. And we see Coronado sort of operating perhaps as an extra forward. So it was posed to the coach following practice on Thursday. Would Matt Coronado perhaps benefit from watching a game or two and, and perhaps seeing the game from the press box and, and trying to get a, a better perspective of things there? And here's what the coach had to say about that on Thursday. Just could, uh, could Matt Coronado benefit from maybe a, a game or two off in your mind, do you think? Um, I, it, it's not a bad thing for a young player. I mean, you see a lot of the younger guys that are, are high picks, um, to take a step back and you can even use Rasmus as an example when he was out for the four games um, you talk to him after the games and he's like man you see the game so different when you're watching it from up top so it's never a bad thing it's just a matter of taking it the right way if it were to happen so that was Ryan Huska Thursday and the question wasn't about would Matt Coronado be sent to the American Hockey League would, would he be benefiting perhaps from a game or two off to observe but I still think that that last message from Huska is important here, and that's understanding and taking it the right way. That applies to whether Coronado was going to sit out a couple games or for the organization to take the direction that they did today, and that's sending him down to the American Hockey League. This is not a bad thing. I don't think that this should be reflected on Matt Coronado in a negative way. There are so few players that are able to make the transition simply from NCAA hockey to being an NHL regular, letting alone, let alone being an NHL regular that's called upon to be a scoring threat, play on your first power play unit, and find chemistry with guys that have been in the NHL for a very long time. That's a big ask for Matt Coronado, and I think he gave it his all. I think we are going to see him back in the NHL level sooner rather than later. But if you're telling me where would I rather have Matt Coronado on a night-to-night basis, it, it's, it's in the American Hockey League playing top minutes for Trent Call and the Calgary Wranglers. He's not a fourth-line center. One game was more than enough to tell me that. His skill set doesn't translate to being a fourth-line center. 
And I, I think ultimately, if you were to ask Craig Conroy, if you were to ask Brian Huska, where would you like to see Matt Coronado in, in a perfect world? Where would you like to be? Where would you like to have him be? It's not fourth line center. His role in the NHL, his skill set doesn't translate to that. So if he's not going to play in a position that it's, it's Adam Ruzicka for me, essentially, right? It's just the guys whose game don't really translate to that. So I, I think the value in him going down to the American Hockey League is a good thing. There are exceptions to every rule. And in Calgary, we've been lucky for a lot of years with guys that have been able to jump immediately into the NHL lineup as soon as they were drafted. Matthew Kachuk did it. Sean Monahan did it. But the majority of NHL prospects have to take their time, and that's, that's not a bad thing. He earned his opportunity. He came up and he, had a, he scored his first NHL goal. That's great. But there's no reason to rush him, especially given the start that this Calgary Flames team has had. They're in the midst of a six-game losing streak. He's struggling to find his game. I think he needs a, a bit of a confidence booster. I think Matt Coronado is going to go down to the American Hockey League and have a ton of success. And I really do think we're going to talk about him being back with the Calgary Flames. And I think he's going to look a lot more like the Matt Coronado that we saw early on in this season when he does come back. And this is a good point pointed out by somebody on the text line. If you're listening live, by the way, 960-960. If you're happy, are you upset by the move today? Are you frustrated about it? You can send us a text at 960-960. This text says, this is a reminder to everyone that Sam Bennett was never properly developed. This is a good move to avoid what happened to Sam. And yeah, look, Sam Bennett spent time with the Calgary Flames and had a good start to his time with the Calgary Flames. But by the time the organization realized he probably needed to go down to the American Hockey League and spend some time, that time had run out. Matt Coronado is waiver exempt. No team can touch him. Use that to your advantage. Do not make the same mistake of, of pushing him to be there and enforcing it when it's just not working. There's, there's nothing wrong with the American Hockey League. I know technically you can call it a demotion because it's not the same league, it's the same, same skill as the NHL. But in terms of developing players, I, this is 100% the right move in my mind and one that I think if you're a Flames fan, if you've enjoyed watching him, if you think he's been good uh, and you're frustrated because you won't get to see him, I, I get it. But I think as a Flames fan, you have to look at this as a positive, that the organization isn't going to push their prospects just because they have the good skill set and they could use a guy like that. They're thinking long-term and they're thinking about the future of this organization because Matt Coronado has every skill set, has every ability to be a long-term piece for the Calgary Flames, but you have to handle it right. And I think that this is the way of, of doing it for the Calgary Flames. Like I said, he's in action this afternoon with the Calgary Wranglers. He had his first opportunity 
at the American Hockey League level. I think he's going to learn a ton under Trent Call. The Wranglers are off to a great start, by the way. 5-0-1 to start the season. So he's going to a much different environment than the one he's been in Calgary. And it's a good opportunity for us to see a couple different members of the Flames organization as well. Martin Pospisil is the guy that comes up in this trade in this transaction for the Calgary Flames. He's a 23-year-old forward. He was a 2018 draft pick, round four, 104th overall, 105th overall, excuse me, and has bided his time in the American Hockey League. He made his AHL debut back in 2019-20, has over 100 games of AHL experience, was off to a red-hot start for the Calgary Wranglers this year, six points in six games. And a chance for another Flames prospect like Connor Zary, who's earned an opportunity to be up with the big club to get his chance with the organization. And I think that's another positive in all of this. The other transaction that we should note, we did know that Jordan Osterley was placed on waivers by the team yesterday. He cleared waivers today. He was sent to the Wranglers and is also uh, in the lineup this afternoon for their game against the San Jose Barracuda. So both Coronado and... Jordan Osterley now with the Calgary Wranglers and in game action on Friday. Nick Simone gets the call up as the extra defenseman right now for the Calgary Flames. So Coronado's gone for the time being to the Wranglers. Up comes Martin Pospisil. We know Connor Zary made a very positive impression in his first NHL action. What did the lines look like at practice on Friday? These courtesy, of course, of our pal Pat Steinberg, the host of Flames Talk here on Sportsnet 960. Well, your top line remains the same. Huberto with Lindholm and Manjapani. Zeri with Kadri and Sharon Govich. That was their best line against the Dallas Stars. Not changing that. Pospisil finds himself on the left side of Backland and Coleman. Hunt with Dubé and Dewar. A.J. Greer operating as your extra forward. D-pairings, Uyghur Anderson, Hannafin Tanev. Zadorov with Gilbert, of course, your two goaltenders, Jordan, uh, excuse me, Jacob Markstrom and Dan Vladar. So Pospisil on a third line spot, at least on practice Friday. We'll see if that is uh, how the Calgary Flames will line up Saturday when they take on the Seattle Kraken for this one game road trip. Lots of changes to the Flames lineup. Lots of new faces, lots of new opportunities. How's the head, how's the head coach feeling? With all the changes and what's going on with his lineup, let's check in with Ryan Huska. Post-practice on Friday, Flames getting set to take on the Seattle Kraken on Saturday. Here's the head coach on Friday. What does uh, Pospisil bring to the mix? Um, size, speed. Um, he's got a bit of an edge to him. And when you, when you talk to the guys, Trent and the staff with the Wranglers, they say he's been their, their best player to date. So um, it gives us another opportunity to get another guy uh, a little bit more energy uh, into the lineup. So we'll see how things go there. What's your, what was your message to, to Matt Coronado? Um, all positive. I mean, I think Matt's done an excellent job in his time here. I mean, he's played, I think, a 17 or 18 games um, when you factor in exhibition and the Penticton side of things and you know, where he came from last year. I think they're at one or two. Um, so as it gets going, it, it, there's a tendency to get a little bit harder, and we're here to work him through that and part of that is um, 
us not wanting to have them just not necessarily sit and just watch a bunch of games. We want them to play. So whether it's one or three or four games, he's he's down with the Wranglers. Um, the message is to to go down, play in all situations, um, and continue to work on the things we needed you to work on. But it was positive conversation. Coach, to embrace bringing in young new players and giving them a chance to break in and mm -hmm. see what they have. Yeah. Is that correct? Fair. Um, you don't know what you have until you, until you see. So, you know, I thought uh, Connor, we talked about him the other day, um, did a very good job for us. Now the challenge is for him to do it again. Um, you want to find some consistency in those guys. And um, if Connor can continue to develop that way, that's a great thing. And, and you look at it, he's been in, with the Wranglers for a couple of years. He's played pro now for um, two plus years. And it's a, there's a big difference. Um, and he came up and he was in the right mindset and he was ready for his opportunity. And as I said, now it's the challenge for him to keep pushing, but it's the same thing with, with POSP. Talking to Dylan Dubé, and he said, yeah. like, look, looking back, he thinks he could have used more time in the AHL. And there's obviously going to be a temptation to view this as yeah. an emotion, but is it sort of inevitable that most guys, like a guy like Matthew, is going to need this time to, just to focus on development? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, we talked, Pat asked the question yesterday um, about potentially sitting a guy out like that, and there's value to it. Um, they see the game differently up top. It allows them to kind of recognize it. But what we're doing this way is putting him in a situation where he's going to touch all aspects of the game, not play 10 minutes a night. He's going to play a lot. And that's something that's important for a younger guy. Ryan, do you, do you have maybe not a timeline, but do, do you anticipate he'll be down there for a little bit? Or do you think he'll, he'll work his way up? We have no timeline right, right now, but um, this is most definitely not the last we've seen of him. I can say that for sure. Is there a way to kind of find that right balance for you as both a coach and wanting to make sure that they develop uh, the proper way as, as opposed to maybe take those setbacks and finding that right amount of you know constructive criticism as well as giving them that time? That's a really good question. You know, I think sometimes you, there's a tendency to put younger guys in positions that they're not quite ready for at times, and you force them into those positions, and then eventually the confidence starts to take a bit of a hit, and eventually they're not playing the same way, then eventually it turns into what's wrong with this player, what's wrong with that player. You want to put them in positions to succeed, uh, and that means you have to put them um, with the right line mates. You have to put them in um, right situations on the ice, uh, and I think if you go too much too soon that if a player is not totally ready for it it's it's damaging to them so you want to keep them going in the right direction uh, making them feel good about their game and where they're going and where they're headed for sure you mentioned this a little bit yesterday Ryan, but just the evolution of michael as a leader behind mm -hmm. the scenes that you've seen growth out of him i imagine like what have you seen out of this guy is that now he's the captain that that you you uh have seen growth wise um, as I mentioned yesterday, I think the one big change for me is he's more vocal this year behind the scenes. Um, I think he's done an excellent job in our room with the players, young guys, old guys, um, challenging people in the dressing room. And in my past years here with them, I haven't seen or heard a ton of that from him. Um, you know, probably a lot of that has to do with him not having the C on his chest, but that's, that's, he's got it in him. And I think he's done an excellent job in that regard. Yeah. At times, things felt really heavy around here last season. Mm -hmm. And even though you guys are going through a tough stretch, yep. the guys appeared to have a lot of energy at practice today. How hard have you guys worked as coaches, or how hard have you had to work as coaches to, to keep spirits up and keep the guys focused on the next game and not the last six? Well, that's another good question. It's not easy. You know, everybody knows that um, this is a results business, and um, we aren't finding them yet. Um, 
but by you know kicking stones and walking around with your head down it, it's not going to get you anywhere so you just have to you got to keep getting up in the morning and making sure it's your very best day with the effort and the the way we want to play um, you show the guys a lot of the things that they do well it's just now we got to do it for 60 minutes they're the lull in there that sometimes shows up in our game hurts us. Um, we have to make sure that we're committed to staying with it. And then it's amazing how quick things turn. Like, I feel like it's it's close. Yeah. You only played one game against a Pacific Division team. Is that a good thing? Because those proverbial four-pointers matter. Yeah, it's it's more about us. It, I don't think the opponent at this stage of the game matters. It's about finding our, our game for the most part, I think, Willsey. Yep. There's Ryan Huskell following practice on Friday. Lots on some of the new faces in the Calgary lineup, including Martin Pospisil, and a lot on Matt Coronado and what going down to the American Hockey League can do for the young man. And wouldn't you know it, uh, already making a strong impression in his AHL debut. Cut up by Coronado at the center of the ice. He's got some jump. Right shot. Coronado shoots and scores in his AHL debut. Matty Coronado makes it one nothing. And showing that lethal right shot of his. Flames fans are going to love to see this. Cuts to the center of the ice, sees a little bit of space up top and makes it count. And this is exactly what this young man needs in his first pro year. Just that confidence that he can score at the professional level. And a perfect start for number 39. That is Sandra Persino on the call. The Wranglers and the San Jose Barracuda are underway right now, Friday afternoon at the Scotiabank Saddle Dome. And Matt Coronado, in his first American Hockey League game, finds the back of the net. He makes a great move at center ice, finds some open space in the offensive zone, and he doesn't need a whole lot of time. He doesn't need a lot of space, but when he gets it, he gets a chance to get that release off, beats the Barracuda's goaltender, and just like that, uh, already making a positive impression. And that's, first of all, uh, as Sandra said, it's a great sign for Flames fans. I think management will be loved to see that already. That And Matt's been a guy that's, I think, had a very level head on him this entire time. It's been great to hear him talk. He's, he hasn't let this moment get ahead of him too much. He Even during training camp, when it was very, very clear he was making the Flames roster, he still talked and he still operated like it was up in the air. And I have no doubt that him going down to the Wranglers, he's going to handle it the right way. And like I said at the beginning of this whole conversation, it's not going to be months and months and months, at least in my opinion, before he's back with the Calgary Flames. I think it's just a good chance for him to reset, get back to doing what makes him successful, and he'll be back at the NHL level. If he continues to score like he already has, in his first game, uh, it'll maybe even be shorter lived his time with the Wranglers than what I thought. Some of your texts at 960-960 on the Matt Coronado discussion on the changes that we've seen to the Flames lineup with Martin Pospisil, Nick Simone up with the group ahead of this game on Saturday with the Seattle Kraken. Uh, Zach texted in saying, Coronado getting sent down. Uh, to get away from the rottenness that is the Calgary Flames isn't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, Wranglers are off to a great start this season. He can get some of his confidence back. 
Um, I think that's 100% accurate. Uh, Wranglers 5-0-1 to start the season and well on their way to beating their sixth win of the year. Um, I don't think it's, I don't want to say it's rotten. Uh, I think this is more of a, an individual move for Matt Coronado than, say, getting away from the situation that is the Calgary Flames. Like, he's going to be back with the team sooner than later. But I just think a good reset moment for him as well. Uh, this one says, hope the Flames have plans for Matt to work on his skills to be a full-time NHLer, not to send him down to win games in the A. No, is it the Wranglers, first of all, were winning before Matt got there. And as most AHL coaches will tell you, their job is more about developing players and teaching players to be pros than winning is. It's great that the Wranglers are winning. It's great they've gone on a couple playoff runs, but for the Calgary Flames and the Calgary Wranglers, the goal is to develop as many prospects into full-time NHLers with the Flames. I don't know that they're overly concerned about what the record is in the American Hockey League team. Uh, this one says, fact that Connor Zary has come up and down so well tells me that perhaps he was the one that should have got all the buzz at the beginning of the year. Uh, this text says, sorry, I'm exhausted of this narrative, but it's as it's never a bad thing for a young guy to get sent down. The problem is with this team is they don't ever seem to be able to convert these guys to contributing NHLers. The fans never get anything to get excited about. There's something hugely wrong with the way that this team develops players. And this is just the next example. I, I think every team has, has ups and downs when it comes to, to player development. Is every player, is every prospect going to turn into a superstar? No. But I think for the most part, we're starting to see some of these draft classes of late for the Calgary Flames bloom into NHL-ready prospects. I think a lot of it is also on the the prospect and the player himself to make a transition to being a full-time NHLer. And uh, you'll hear guys like Kadri and Backlund who play with some of these young players. They talk all the time about that consistency that it takes on a night-in, night-out basis. I think the Flames overall do a pretty good job when it comes to to drafting and and developing. Have they hit on superstars every single round? No, but I think most teams have pretty similar issues when it comes to that sort of thing. Uh, Our pal Matt and Cochran says, I feel okay with moving Coronado to the AHL for some time. He's had some success here, but the team as a whole has been struggling and it's frustrating to watch. can only imagine what it's like for a rookie in the locker room. Give him a couple weeks to get his feet back under him with the Wranglers and call him back up when either the team is showing the ability to gel and have success again or Conroy and management have made a clear choice in the change of direction for the team. Uh, this Texas sad thing is guys like Coronado have to pay the price to get sent down to the minors because of waiver exemption while several vets collect high salaries and don't barely deserve to be in an NHL lineup. Uh, this text says, going back to what we heard from head coach Ryan Huska, I uh, love that quote, you don't know what you have until you see. Stark difference from the last regime, not naming any names. That from Dan and Cochran. And last but not least, Tim and Moose Jaw. Uh, do you think all these call-ups are a precursor to some trade coming? That's why all these younger guys are getting their chance, so it's not a big shock to their system when the potential trades happen. I don't know, Tim. I, I I think right now this is, I think this is a good opportunity for Craig Conroy and the rest of the Flames management group to get a look 
at a lot of these young players like a Martin Pospisil because their depth has been tested forward wise with, you know, Kevin Rooney and Jacob Pelche dealing with injuries. Dubé was banged up the other day. I don't know that it's the precursor to anything. I'm sure Craig Conroy is, you know, with all the UFAs and with everything going around his team, I'm sure he's busy as far as looking around the league at ways to improve his team going forward. But I, I think this is just a team looking at their options right now and trying to get a good look at who who's ready for this opportunity. And if they, if they are going to go in a younger direction, who deserves those opportunities? That's what I think we're seeing. And uh good start for, for Matt Coronado. Uh, as far as his Wranglers debut, if you missed it, he's already on the scoreboard uh, in his first AHL game. We'll take a break. We'll come back on the other side. Uh, haven't chat with our pal Adnan Verk in a while. He's been busy covering the World Series. He was there for MLB Network. We'll check in with him as the Texas Rangers brought home their first World Series title. That's next when Sportsnet Today returns here on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Welcome back to the program. It's Logan Gordon along with you. From the Doug Lacey's Basement Systems downtown studios for Doug Lacey's Basement Systems, cracked foundation, Boeing foundation walls. They have a simple permanent solution to stabilize your foundation. Contact Basement Systems. They're all things basement. You visit dlbasementsystems.com. Very happy to continue the hour by going down the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. Welcoming in our pal from MLB Network who is covering the World Series live for the first time in a while. That's our pal Adnan Verk on a Friday. Verk, how are you, pal? I'm doing great, man. It's great to catch up with you again, Logan. It was awesome. My first World Series in nine years. Uh, I'll never take it for granted again. Not that I didn't I did before, but it was amazing. And it's so funny how different the World Series feels if you're a spectator versus being a part of it. I think if I was at home, I would have said, oh, five-game series, kind of a dud. Epic game one, two blowouts in game two and game four. But other than that, games three and five well-pitched, but wasn't memorable. Being there, though, was a different story. I got to say I saw the first Rangers World Series title ever in 62 years. Imagine you're a 70-year-old man. I feel like your first memories of a sports fan come when you're six, seven, eight years old. Imagine you're a 70-year-old Rangers fan. You've never seen the win. You finally saw the first World Series. Amazing. And Arizona, the fans were great. Rangers fans were awesome. And most importantly, it was plus 27 and sunny in Arizona, not a cloud in the sky. Logan, I would go on hikes in the morning, and then I would go watch baseball. What a life, right? Could be worse. And you were rubbing shoulders with baseball royalty. I see all the pictures, man. Mookie Betts, Randy Johnson, Aaron Judge was there. You're hanging out with Albert Pujols. I love the coverage that MLB Network had bringing in all these different guys for all the different perspectives because – all these guys have so much to offer when it comes to what these moments are like for guys. There's so much that goes into uh, a series in baseball. I thought the coverage was outstanding. It must have been awesome for you, too, because you got to go shoulder to shoulder and chat with some of these guys. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned the star power, man. Our uh, producers, Will and Ian, you know, I really don't know who's coming up until the day of. So that day was before game three. They said, hey, Aaron Judge is the Roberto Clemente Award winner, which is as important trophies you can get in baseball, you know, that's in honor of the great pirate superstar. And it's about humanitarian contributions off the field. So, you know, Harold Reynolds has won before my uh, colleague and friend and, and for judge to win, that was amazing. They say, he's going to be here. I'm like, Oh my God. Okay, cool. And then they're like, Oh, Mookie Betts is going to be here. Cause he's a correspondent for Fox for the world series. I'm like, Oh my God. Then they mentioned Randy Johnson, like four times signing award winner, one of the greatest pitchers in baseball history. It was unreal. 
So uh, I think Nathaniel Lowe was on that day as well. So with apologies to Nathaniel Lowe, he kind of got beaten up with a star power. He's a great guy as well. Uh, and Pools, I was scheduled with the day after, and he's done maybe 15, 20 days with yeah. this MLB network, but he's excellent. I mean, every time I work with Albert, I'm like, this guy's hit over 700 home runs, one of four people ever. He's a three-time MVP and a future Hall of Famer, and he's a sweetheart of a guy. I mean, every time I work with him, I always think what a big heart he has. Uh, his now ex-wife has a daughter with Down syndrome. And I remember when Albert you know, got married, he adopted her, and he does a ton of work, man, for charitable efforts. So every time I work with Albert, I always think what a great player he is and what a great person he is. And those other guys you mentioned. And then, by the way, game five, only because of Harold, Ken Griffey Jr. was just wandering around, and Harold convinced him and swayed him just to do five minutes or less. I'm like, oh, my God, when I was a kid, Ken Griffey Jr. is one of my favorite players. I mean, always with the backwards hat, that sweet swing as a lefty. It's, you know, bazillion home runs. It was really cool, man. Randy Johnson, I, I should have got a picture sitting next to him because he's 6'11", and I'm 5'8", but thankfully we were sitting. But he's a great guy. I, I was worried because you know, I've seen Randy Johnson. Maybe some people have said he's kind of surly or difficult media. Not the case at all. Totally friendly, smiled, answered my questions, loves photography. I'm now following him on Instagram, RJ51. He's an incredible photographer. He went to Africa, took pictures of all the animals and stuff. So it's, it's really cool, his second career. He's going to have like an exhibit. There's a gallery taking place in Arizona. So it was really cool, man. And I, and I love Mookie Betts. He's my, my, me and my son Yusuf, one of our favorite players. He's an awesome guy. I said to Mookie, you're one of my favorite players because you're short like me and he laughed. He's like, hey, man, I do it for the little guy. He's, he's like 5'9", 165, and he hits 40 home runs. I, I don't understand. He's such an incredible athlete and a great bowler. He can dunk a basketball. Like he's just he's incredible, man. So I always tell people when they say, you know, who do you root for? I say, it's not about the teams, it's the players. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of all those players. Aaron Judge, Mookie Betts, Randy Johnson, Albert Pujols, Ken Griffey Jr. It was awesome. I want to say I heard that Randy Johnson photography story before because I, I want to say it was a couple years ago. It must not have been that, maybe not even that long ago. I think there was a viral picture of him doing photography at an NFL game. Someone was just checking through, um, you know, sidelines and was like, obviously you mentioned he's a he's a pretty tall dude. He's pretty noticeable. But someone was like, that's Randy Johnson on the sideline of an NFL game taking pictures. And that's when it came out that he's got this massive love for photography and it's been like his favorite hobby since retiring from baseball yeah he said you know, when you retire from baseball it's different you need to find something else right most of these guys retire they're 38 39 40 41 so like you know you still have half your life if, if life expectancy is 80 years old so they got to find something to do and most of them have made good money so it's not like they're working for money it's just to find something that you just love and are passionate about so yeah randy johnson photography after that trip to africa he got bit by the bug and He's a hell of a photographer, man. Trust me. I was looking at his pictures. He really has uh, has a great eye. Both uh, He had a great eye on the field for the strike zone and a great eye off the field for photography. That's crazy. Great. I uh, loved all the pictures, man. Glad you had that experience. Looked like a great one. And you had a fun series. To It was only five games, but it feels like there was a ton going on between the drama in game one, Verk, the beatdown in game two from the Diamondbacks, uh, Aldolis Garcia going down in the injury, like, as far as a five-game series go, the D-backs and the Rangers packed a lot in there. Absolutely, and you'll laugh about this. Anybody who's ever covered a game knows the key is you got to beat the traffic. So I, I had the best gig going, which is that I was doing the pregame. So I would get up, and I'd go to the gym, and I'd watch TV, be on my phone, whatever, and then I'd, I'd get a ride to the park, and uh, from there I'd eat some more, and I'd watch a little TV, <laughs> and I'd go through my notes, and then I would do a two-hour pregame show, and then I was free. So I would go up to the MLB suite, so it's Major League Baseball, and they have unlimited food and drink, so I would have a little steak, a little shrimp, you know, living the good life, uh, having Pepsi, and I would just sit and watch baseball. So 
I, I didn't do any post games. So for game one, after six innings, me and Brian Kenny, one of my honor colleagues, also a longtime ESPN guy, said, let's just go get a car and go back. So we went back and um, were able to get a car back. And I was able to watch the finale at home. But I kept thinking afterwards, man, I should have just stayed for the whole game rather than worrying about beating traffic because I could have seen how loud it was when Seeger hits a game-tying home run at the bottom of the ninth and then Adolis Garcia hits the, the walk-off homer. So I wasn't there to watch it in person. Uh, but game two, I was there for that blowout. You mentioned 9-1. to one. And then it was interesting. You felt like Arizona should be up 2-0. Like they should have been yeah. leading that series. And instead, the Rangers rip off three straight wins in the road. This is one of the greatest road teams. It is the greatest road team ever. The Rangers went 11-0 and on the road this postseason. That is unheard of. Uh, I remember the Yankees in 96. I believe they were 6-0 and on the road. Now, there was less rounds back then. I get that. But I've never seen a team like this be so good on the road. And, and game three was a well-pitched game, close game. Um, the fact that Scherzer got hurt, only pitched three innings because of back spasms, but John Gray came in. It's interesting. Early on for Texas, Montgomery and Evaldi really sure carried the load, but in many ways – Gray and then Heaney out of nowhere in game four. Like, that's a bullpen game we thought for both teams. Heaney threw 76 pitches, five innings, and was excellent. I interviewed him on the set the next day, and I said, that's critical. You saved the bullpen now. Everyone's going to be fresh. And I said they really didn't need it because Nate Evaldi is one of the great big-game pitchers ever. Big-game Nate. Whenever there's a big game, he's involved in it. In clinching games, has an ERA around one. Jeez. And, uh, you know, he stepped up again. I mean, that last game was awesome because, you know, both those guys pitched really well, and I love Zach Allen. I've interviewed him three times this year. He's a South Jersey guy, huge Eagles fan. So often we're talking about Jalen Carter and, you know, the defensive line of the Eagles. And then when it's time to actually talk baseball, he was even better. But <laughs> I was really pulling for Zach. And he was the first pitcher, honestly, logo in World Series history since the 85 World Series and Charlie Liebrandt to retire the first 14 batters. So he had a no-hitter going. And eventually Texas was able to scratch across the run, and that was it. Evaldi in that game five was so good, even though he had traffic on the bases. Yeah. They went 0 for 9 with runners in scoring position and left 11 on base. So Arizona had their chances. They just couldn't hit well enough, and the Rangers did. They hit home runs. They showed off their power, and they had their pitching that stepped up. And, and even their bullpen, Josh Spores is fantastic. He's been a lot of fun to watch for the Rangers. LeClerc was able to be successful in and that's why Texas won the World Series. Their offense was better, and, and they're a 90-win team. And, and bottom line, Logan, I'll be honest, it was cool to see Arizona in it, and I love the state of Arizona and the weather specifically, but it would have felt awesome an 84-win team win the World Series. Probably one of the worst World Series teams of my lifetime, the 06 Cardinals won 83 games, but they still had Albert on that team. Like, they still had Pools and other stars. This is not a team of superstars, and they may very well one day be. Corbin Carroll's going to win Rookie of the Year. He's a great guy. Del Marte had the hit streak. But, like, I just think even 84-win team in the World Series, it dilutes to what is the point of the regular season. Mm-hmm. It was awesome because it was unpredictable, but, the, the, but the, you know, the, the counter to that is the Dodgers won 100 games. Uh, the Orioles won 100 games. The Braves won 100 games, and they had one playoff series combined, play, one playoff win combined. So, I don't know. I don't think Rob Manfred, the commissioner, is going to change it yet. It's only two years in. I had a pleasure to talk to Rob before game four. He said he's open to maybe reseeding. Well, that wants to see how the format works, but for an all wild card matchup, it does make sense that Texas would win because they were a 90 win team and they were in first place for much of the year, 138 of 139 games. I got a couple of uh, Rangers based topics that I want to hit on with you. It, it wasn't that long ago, Ed, and we were talking about a team that lost 102 games in 2021. They had six straight losing campaigns before that. Of course, this is their first World Series title in a 62 year 
team history. The team hadn't been in the playoffs, like I said, since 2016. This has been a pretty remarkable turnaround. And the one thing about the Rangers that if you're not following them, and you're not you know listening in on the press conferences, all the sort of things that, that came up to me through this was they talked about Seager and Marcus Simeon specifically because they said, look, we, we know we can spend money, but we want to spend money on the right type of people. We want guys that are going to to build a culture here. And I believe the, the quote from Seager was, culture is built by people. And they loved that Seager came to what could have been a long-term project in Texas, uh, you know, coming from the Dodgers and, and knowing that they were always going to be good while he was there. And Simeon came over from the Blue Jays coming off one of his best career seasons. Like, yes, they spent the money to get these guys, but they wanted to go after guys that they thought could build the right culture in Texas going forward. Yeah, you know, there's two ways to build a team, right? Either build it to the draft or you spend some money, and Texas spent some money. And their payroll jumped from $150 million to $250 million. So it's easy to say, well, Chris Young spent $100 million and they won the World Series. But you got to spend that money wisely. And Seager and Simeon combined, that's a half a billion dollars. Seager, 325 Simeon 175, and Simeon had a bad postseason until the final two games. He stepped up big time. Five RBI from the leadoff spot in game four, then went deep again in game five. You rarely see emotion from him, but he was pumped up around the bases, and he pumped his fist. And, and Seager is just one of the best pure hitters in baseball. He joins a very short list of guys to have won World Series MVP multiple times, including the great Reggie Jackson. So Seager was – you start to wonder yourself, why are they even pitching to him? What's Troy Lavello thinking? But – no matter what, Seager would punish whoever the pitcher was with big, timely hits, none more so than off Paul Seawald in that game one. So ultimately, I think you know the Rangers spent money, but they did so wisely, and that's the key. You know, you, It's one thing to spend, but to do it wisely. And like I said, half a billion dollars. They could have signed other pitchers. They could have looked at bullpen depth. They're like, no, no, let's just sign two guys. And one of the reasons why is Chris Young said, you know, it's hard to make trades in baseball. It's harder than you think. So you can't just say, let's just go and get a star player. Ultimately, you do have to make signs like this. And when there's a guy available, you may think it's an overpay, but it isn't because that 325 resulted in a World Series title first in 62 years. So I think the Seeker and Simeon have both been worth every penny here for this team. And and I think Chris Young should be um, praised for it. The other thing I will say, Logan, is their pitching staff Here's what I found fascinating. Normally you go get a guy and then you're good. Meaning they signed DeGrom, give him all that money, and it's a disaster. Tommy John, he pitched 30 innings this year, but they still won the World Series. Now, this has happened before. Atlanta won a World Series, even without Ronald Acuna, who's one of the best players in baseball. But here's where they were smart. They knew DeGrom was a risk. Let's go out and get a pitcher at the deadline. You know, screw it. Let's go get two pitchers at the deadline. So they get Scherzer, DeGrom's former teammate, and he was very good for them in the regular season, then he got hurt. Playoff time was unsuccessful, right? Even that World Series start, three innings, that's it. He's done. But who cares? Because they also got Jordan Montgomery, and Montgomery yeah. was a stud for them. He was a big reason why they even got to the World Series, how he pitched. So I think it was really savvy move. Spend a bunch of money up the middle, but then also get pitching. And don't just get one pitcher. Get multiple pitchers. Look at Baltimore, for example. Their starting pitching needed to be improved. They traded for one pitcher at the deadline, Jack Flaherty. And he wasn't very good. With respect to Jack Flaherty, he wasn't even on the postseason starters. He was not a guy they needed in the three games that they started. So that was a big miss, I think, by Michael Ives. I like Baltimore a lot, but they should have went and got Verlander or a big stud. Instead, Texas gets two guys, and one of the two in Montgomery really stepped up big for them. Maybe the most important addition to this entire Texas Rangers puzzle might be Bruce Bochy uh, coming out of retirement to, to manage this team. He already had three World Series titles, Verk. He's now 
uh, you know, the fifth manager to win a World Series with multiple teams and the first coach to beat a team in the World Series and then manage that team to a title. Of course, they beat the Texas Rangers back in 2010 when he was part of the Giants. Uh, just clearly one of the best managers of all time and a guy that really doesn't have anything, didn't have anything left to prove again coming back to Texas or coming into this situation with Texas, but a guy that I really think handled this situation as best as, as pretty much anybody could, given what like you mentioned, all the, the ups and downs that Texas has gone through. It was always tough to watch him throw the mound and go get a pitcher with that odd gait. You almost thought he'd fall <laughs> over in that big head of Bochy's. That hat size, at least a size eight, but he's an incredible manager and a great guy, and everyone raves about him. He's only the sixth manager ever to win four World Series titles. Jeez. And I think it's even more impressive than some of those other guys because they did so mainly on one team, right? Casey yep. Stengel or Walter Alston or Joe McCarthy. Like, those are Dodgers, Yankees teams that were really loaded. This guy's moving around. You know, he gets the World Series. The Padres, they don't win, wins three with the Giants, in which they were not always favored. And now he gets Texas to get to the World Series when they were a wildcard team. It's, it's an amazing resume for a 68-year-old man. But he was clearly not coming off the recliner just to hang out. They, they brought him in to win, and to do so in year one, I, I think it's a remarkable achievement. And in talking to some of the Rangers players, like Nathaniel Lowe or Jonah Heim or Josh Spores, they all said, like, he's a great communicator. He'll make the effort to go talk to each guy before the game. How you feeling? How you good? You know, here's what the plan is tonight. So I think that clear communication is important. And what he did with the bullpen was amazing. This is a Texas team at one point lost 16 of 20 games in August. And in September, their bullpen was, like, flammable. It was a disaster. And yet, Boshi with the bullpen is able to mix and match so well and so effortlessly. You couldn't really trust any of the relievers you felt going in. And by the end of it, you still can't really trust Chapman, except for more than a couple of outs. But LeClerc, he leaned on for four-out saves. Again, scores was lightning in a bottle for them. And I think a lot of that, when I look at a good bullpen, that has to go to the manager knowing how to deploy his weapons. And credit to Bruce Boshi, man. He's an all-timer. Uh, your Eagles got the Cowboys this weekend. How are you feeling about a big divisional matchup? <laughs> yeah, I can't wait, man. Me and Zach Gow were talking about that in Texas because Jerry's world is right there. And I said, man, how cool is that stadium? He's like, well, I'm an Eagles fan. I go, oh, me too. Trust me, I don't like the Cowboys either. I just think it's a cool stadium and a great place to watch a game. But um, I can't wait, man. Listen, this is a gauntlet for the Eagles coming up. They're 7-1, and one, but their schedule moving forward is awfully tough. they got the Cowboys at home, their favorite minus three, then a bye, and then it's like Chiefs, Niners, Bills, Cowboys again. And there's one other team I'm forgetting, which is pretty tough as well. So with that six-game slate, I'm hoping they can go three and three. That would be ten and four. And then if you can kind of finish strong and maybe go thirteen and four, you can get the number one seed. So it's been a weird season. The Eagles are the best team in football by record, but some of those wins have been challenging. Commanders have played as tough two divisional games, beat them in overtime. And this past Sunday, they were trailing at the half. They were able to bounce back, overcome some uncharacteristic miscues from Jalen Hurts because. He eventually has such great chemistry with A.J. Brown. God, six straight games, 125 receiving yards or more. Brown has been Jeez. amazing for them. He's got more receiving yards than the rest of the Titans receivers combined. So I don't know why Tennessee didn't want to pay him, but clearly it's been a huge win for Philadelphia. But I can't wait, man. You know Dallas Philly is always special. You know the Cowboys are going to be up for this game. I like Philly to win, but I do think the line is correct. It's going to be a tight win, but I think we'll pull it out with our offense. Yeah, it's a tough little gauntlet. You're right here. Dallas, KC, Buffalo. San Fran at Dallas at Seattle. And then you get the end of the year. You've got both New York teams and Arizona mixed in there, but who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe Rogers is back for that, uh, for one of those games. If you're, uh, if you're the Eagles worried about taking on New York, but should, Oh, those are both giants games. So you're fine. You get an easy way to finish off the year then. 
Okay, yeah, that's good news. Yeah, that my, my goal is three and three through these next six. You're right. Seahawks was the last team I was forgetting. Yeah. And then if you can go 10-4, and four, then if you can finish 3-0, and oh, you know, beat the Giants. Again, that's tough divisional games to beat both. They did that against Washington, and Arizona stinks. So I'm hoping 13-4, and four, maybe it's 12-5. and five, But, yeah, this, the good news is this. You beat the Cowboys, and you do get the bye. So the extra week to load up for KC, that will definitely help. Yeah, and we should actually get a, a decent primetime game. I think those two are going on Sunday night, so that should be uh, a good one in a couple weeks' time. Nice. Uh, before we let you go, uh, what's going on the Cinephile Podcast? You managed to pump out a pretty good episode uh, the other day, despite all your World Series travels. Yeah, thanks, man. I did that from the hotel, so I hope the audio was okay. The mic, obviously, my microphone would be on the road, but uh, Chris Cody, my producer, said it was still workable. We were able to get it done, and uh, Nat Segaloff is great. He is the author of a new book called uh, Say Hello to My New Friend, 40, Say Hello to My Old Friend, excuse me. I say to my little friend, I keep screwing it up. 40 years of Scarface, which is Nat's book. You would think one of the most famous lines in movie history, I could say it right. Maybe. Say hello to my little friend. Which by, the, which, by the way, we talked about that line, how Oliver Stone came up with it, what the original line was. Brian De Palma's directing, of course, Pacino's unforgettable performance, and Stephen Bauer and Michelle Pfeiffer as well. So it was cool to talk about that. Plus, I pulled off an epic off-day, Logan, in between the World Series, between games two and three. On Sunday, I took a 7 a.m. flight from Dallas, got to Arizona, Watched the Eagles commanders at a local bar, which was like a 10 a.m. local time. Then hopped in an Uber and saw Paul Giamatti's The Holdovers, which is outstanding. It's one of the best movies of the year. I'll review that next week on Cinephile. And then this past episode, which you mentioned, I reviewed The Killer, which is the second movie I watched on Sunday. So think about that. I've, I've seen doubleheaders in movies before, as have you. But I've never done that in two different movie theaters and never done it in two different Ubers. Like it was just an impressive <laughs> performance I pulled off, if I may say. Eagles game, Uber, movie, another Uber, movie, Uber, go home. And by 8 o'clock Pacific time, I was pretty much done for the day. But it was an awesome day. So the killer, Fassbender's new movie, it's on Netflix November 10th from the great director David Fincher. I don't think it's one of Fincher's best, but I do think Fassbender is always watchable and fun to watch. And it's, it's moody and atmospheric and I encourage people to check out when they can next week on Netflix. You're the best, Virk. Appreciate it as always, pal. Glad you had a great time at the World Series. Look forward to chatting with you next week. Thanks so much, Logo. Glad we squeezed it in. I know we were supposed to go yesterday, but I was flying home. So thanks for adjusting with me as always, pal. Have a great weekend. Anytime, Virk. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Adnan Virk joining us down the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar. Guest hotline. He's a regular here on Sportsnet 960, MLB Network, NHL Network. The Cinephile Podcast, if you're a movie nerd like myself, and yes, uh, Adnan spending the last couple weeks between Arizona and Texas as they were covering the World Series with the MLB Network. Uh, you can check him out on Twitter, at Adnan S. Verk. We'll take a break. We'll come back on the other side, kicking off Hour 2. More football talk. Our pal Matt Marchese from uh, Sportsnet 590, the fan in Toronto, is going to join us. We'll tee up a busy Sunday coming up in the NFL and taking a look at the next opponent for the Calgary Flames. They take on the Seattle Kraken for the first time this season on Saturday. Their play-by-play voice, Everett Fitzhugh, is going to join us as we take a look at the opposition. That is Hour 2, and it's coming up next here on Sportsnet 960, The Fan.